1: Hello and welcome to AI
2: Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Conflicted and confused. Conflicted and confused. Well, (laughs) let's deal with them one at a time. What is it that's conflicting you?
3: What happens if you've got a group game in Gaziantep and then a knockout game in Turin and to play a knockout tournament in the same tournament in the same week, you have to fly 10 hours through... Turkey, Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Croatia, and then into, Tur- uh, into Italy in a best-case scenario.
2: So what Carla is what referring to is that the 2032 European Championships will take place in Italy and Turkey because reasons. Um, there is absolutely no reason Italy couldn't have hosted this competition by themselves they have the infrastructure, they have the stadiums well, the stadiums would need upgrading but you have 8 years, it would have 9 years, it would have been fine Uh, Turkey probably could have held the competition by itself it's big enough, it has the infrastructure it has the stadiums but no, no because football is completely fucked we have a tournament being hosted by two countries very far away from each other. In European terms, obviously, in American terms or African terms, these countries are next door neighbours. But in European terms, these countries are a long way away from each other. Uh, This is a very stupid idea, Carol. It's a very, very stupid idea. And it's just a way for UEFA to rinse cash from two different countries.
3: I think it's also actually incumbent to mention it's cowardly of those countries because they want to host something and don't want to go through the usual process of bidding for it and not winning it. Um, We used to have nations like Turkey and Italy, for example, bidding for these things, and they won or they didn't win. And now we're just going to have unopposed 2028 and unopposed 2032, and that's just going to be the place that it's in. It kind of removes a lot of the point of saying we would like to host something, and this is why we're a good choice. Now it's just, well, we're the only choice because we've just grouped with whoever else wants to.
2: Yeah, basically. Like, whichever other country would like to get on get in on this, regardless of geographical proximity to our country, give us a call and we're well up for this. Like, if, if it had been Norway, it would have been the same. They would have just gone with it. And as you said, it was unopposed. So they've just been given this competition as opposed to trying to find a better solution. Uh, as we know, the, or as people may know, or may not know at this point, because it's quite early in the announcement phase, Euro 2028 20, will be hosted by the UK and Ireland because Turkey pulled out of that one to join the bid for the other one. So the fact that they were going to... Hosted it by themselves and then decided, oh no, we'll just join in with this other bid. It just, it makes a mockery of the whole thing. Um, we can at least look forward to Euro 2028, which was originally meant to be a bid without England's involvement. And now I'm sure will be taken over by England with most of the matches played in London. And the semi finals and final all played at Wembley, which is not what Ireland, Scotland, Northern Ireland, or Wales wanted. But England have to make it all about themselves. Would you say that's fair?
3: Would you like me to collectively apologise?
2: I would. I would. And why are you apologising? <laughs> I've got a few other things I
3: want England to apologise for. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll stop short of um, taking accountability and responsibility for everything you have a gripe with, because, well, it would be historical and I would be here a while and I have things to do this week. Um, but I would not be surprised if the finals there. Could we maybe suggest a semi could at least be at, I don't know, Hampton or something like that? They should
2: have won at Hamden. They should have won. The semi should be in Hamden, and in in Cardiff, Cardiff maybe. Yeah. Being honest, like if we yeah. were, if Ireland were using Croke Park for the competition, which they won't, then Croke Park would have been an amazing uh, venue for a semi final. But the Aviva is not big enough no. for a semi final. It will top out a quarter final um, range, but like a semi final at Hamden, and another at the principality or whatever it's called now um i think it's that's called it principality that yeah. would be that's amazing the- and then have the final at, at wembley that that's how it should be that's a joint bid
3: yeah um i agree that's that's where the semi should happen but i assume the funding of wembley will come into the equation and like you say it'll be a quarter there a semi there and the final there probably
2: Yeah, I'm guessing so. So the stadiums that have been put forward. um, Wembley. Wembley.
3: Stadium, the Cardiff one. Hamden.
2: Spurs Stadium, which is obviously sensational. The New Everton Stadium, which is looking like it will be a fantastic venue. The City of Manchester Stadium, which, you know, it'd be nice for it to actually be full once. St. James's Park. Villa Park, so again, like you've just taken over completely. Um, the Aviva and Casement Park, in so all the other countries get one stadium, and England take over with five. Sorry, six. Like, that's not right. That's not right. There's other great stadiums in Scotland. You've got Celtic Park, you've got Ibrox, and you could use Murrayfield which is a phenomenal stadium. In in Ireland, we've got a bunch of stadiums that could have been repurposed, a lot of the big GAA stadiums, or as I said, Croke Park. But no, we get one. The Welsh get one and England just get six because, you know, there we go. Anyway, that's not your fault, but I am bitter. I'm very bitter about this. Um, Now, you also said you were confused. What is your confusion stemming from?
3: Um, I think we could probably roundly call it ineptitude, but it stems from Tuesday night results and performances.
2: So we had 10 games in the Champions League last night. No, eight games, sorry, eight games. I'll go through the scores. You stop me when you when there's one that you want to talk about. Uh, Union Berlin two, Braga three. Stop. Okay, let's get into this one.
3: Um, we spoke about Union Berlin at the start of the season. Obviously, really, really good upward trajectory in general. Uh, last season, a really, really good season start. The campaign with two wins in the Bundesliga. Uh, what, what's happened since, please? Yeah, they they just seem
2: to have fallen off the proverbial cliff. They lost to Heidenheim in the league at the weekend. They lost to Hoffenheim the week before. Real Madrid obviously beat them in their opening game. Wolfsburg beat them. RB Leipzig beat them. They haven't won a game since the 26th of August. And last night, they go 2-0 up in the first 37 minutes. And then completely capitulate. Uh Niakata, Bruma, and a late, late, late Andre castro goal giving Braga the win. Now I I admittedly haven't paid close enough attention, so I don't know if they've got a raft of injuries or what's gone on, but they are in a horrible run of form, and it's really not what you want when you're, you know, in the midst of your first Champions League campaign. But as things stand, they, they just look like they're going to be the whipping boys. Not not necessarily getting hammered each week, but potentially losing all six games. This was, like, we didn't expect them to get through. I thought they'd probably get, you know, five, maybe six points. This was the three points that I thought they'll definitely get. And they've come away without
3: yeah, I mean, a horrible run—six six defeats in a row. Obviously, they they did make the decision to use the Olympia Stadium for their Champions League matches, um, which you know some fans were obviously displeased with because of the <coughs> excuse me the culture that they've been building at the club, and it's you know all part of it. But I don't think when you can obviously look at the the domestic results as well as the European ones, you can say that that is really the any kind of driving factor here. Um, it is perhaps. Just the difficulty of sustaining performances above the overall level, and perhaps the question of pressure or maybe in individual cases, there might be the the opposite to that where you know they think they've achieved stuff and they, they take the foot off the pedal. Um, I, I don't watch them every single game. I've watched a couple of the league games this season for them, but certainly there's not the same assuredness and intensity and... Um, Just real self-belief about them, but obviously that latter point especially can certainly be a consequence of losing matches uh, rather than anything any deeper, let's say.
2: Well, hopefully they'll get things turned around. Um, They've got Dortmund away this weekend, which is not exactly the ideal place to be going when you're in horrendous form. Though Dortmund themselves have looked... Well, actually, to be fair, Dortmund have won three or four in a row in the Bundesliga. So yeah, not not exactly the ideal game for them. So hopefully they'll get things sorted out. After that, then uh they get Stuttgart, which should be should be a win at home, and then it's it's Napoli. And like you said, like, they have lost their home pitch advantage by moving the games to the to the the, the Olympia Stadium, which is visually and aesthetically and architecturally, it's a masterpiece. But the atmosphere in that stadium is pretty shit, Carl. I've been there four different times. It's a pretty shit atmosphere. Whereas the atmosphere at their home ground is notoriously vibrant. So, I don't know. Any ground with a running track, to be fair, is generally a shit atmosphere. Last night, they failed to really make make the most of it. They're going to have to turn things around. Uh, Moving on, the other game then in that group, Napoli 2, Real Madrid 3. Confusion. Napoli go one up, Real get two one up, Napoli equalize, and then an Alex Marais own goal for Real. Fairly even game.
3: Yeah, um I mean I didn't watch all of this one just just later on. Um my my real point here is how can the ball be hit so hard by Valverde and either the crossbar or Alex Meret's shoulder not break?
2: That's very fair. That is very, very fair. Um a thunder bastard, as the man might say. Um Orby Salzburg Nil Real Sociedad two. Good win on the road for Socilad. Uh Inter Milan won Benfica nil. PSV two, Sevilla nil. Sorry, Se- PS- Sevilla two. Uh lots madness. of late goals in that one.
3: Absolute madness.
2: <laughs> one one nil to Sevilla up until the 86th minute. Luke De Jong scored. Naziri put Sevilla back ahead a minute later, and then Jordan Teze. With a late, late goal. Lots of shots from PSV in that one. Um, lens to Arsenal Football Club 1. Carol. Yeah. I was informed Arsenal were one of the favourites to win the competition by Arsenal fans. Well, how is it that they've <laughs> thrown away a, a 1 0 lead away to a club that really and truly should be several levels below them?
3: Are, are several levels below them and showed that last night in certain sections of the match. Um, I'm not going to pin the entirety on this, but I thought it was, um, again, one of the more unnecessarily extravagant changes, uh, a couple of very nearly, perhaps very slightly, um I don't want to use the word arrogant, but I think underestimating the competition, uh, selections from Arteta, um, starting Tomiassu and Trossard, I mean, okay, good enough players to start games shouldn't make an overall difference, but when you have got problems in midfield in terms of selecting which are your guaranteed starters and you make an entirely different left-hand side with Zinchenko, Havertz and Trossard all starting, no real cohesion between them. Um, I think it was asking for trouble, to be perfectly honest. Saka injured, obviously, early on, doesn't help mm. anything. Huge um, blow,
2: potentially huge yeah. blow, Do they have City this weekend.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's not not good timing for them at all. Obviously, I have to wait and see what the outcome of it is. Um, but really, I think the main takeaway is um, one of the, the young players who uh, I was harping on about all summer uh, yes. did the damage to them. yeah. <laughs> El-Yawahi with an uh, outrageous
2: assist. An absolutely outrageous assist for the opener. But that finish is sumptuous, Carl. Like, absolutely it, it just bends perfect. Do you know what? It, it reminded me, do you remember the, the Suarez goal against Stoke? Now, it's obviously, it's on the bounce. It's not the same as Suarez who was shooting off the floor. But just that gorgeous curl and arc. You know, like just to come in round the goalkeeper's dive and into the far corner. And then Wahi himself with the winner on 69 minutes. Um, what what really impressed me about this, Carl, was his movement because as they break down the right hand side, Saliba is in really good position on Wahi. They're running towards the box. Saliba doesn't pay attention, doesn't look to see where Wahi is continues to charge into his own box and why he just slows up on the edge of the area and finds himself three yards of space and William Saliba has no idea. The ball finds him and it's a great finish. Um, Really, and look, Arsenal will say they were a little bit unlucky with certain chances and maybe that's true. The keeper made a couple of good saves. Tommy Asi probably should have scored. But Abdul Semed should have scored as well. So, You know, all in all, I think it's a pretty fair result.
3: Um, Yeah, fair and also rubbish for Arsenal, obviously.
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, Moving on, Copenhagen 1, Bayern Munich 2. No goal for Harry Kane is about the only surprise in that one. And then finally, and we have saved the main event for last, obviously, Manchester United 2. Galatasaray, three at Old Trafford. Rasmus Heusland puts United one or puts yeah, puts United one up. Um Wilfred Zaha scores one of the scruffiest and worst defended goals I've ever seen to make it one one. Heuslin puts United two one up. He's had a goal disallowed in the interim. On this second goal, lots of people fawning over it. It's just abysmal from Galatasaray. One of the players slips in halfway. Hoytland picks it up as he moves into the Galatasaray half. And nobody makes a tackle. He has to semi-fend off one guy who never actually gets close enough to make a challenge. And it's a good finish. It shows good pace, good control, and it's a good finish. But it doesn't beat anybody to get there. It's bad defending. Um... So
1: that's United 2 one up. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design T-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping.
2: Equalises on 71 as United fall asleep. On 77, Casemiro is sent off for foul in the penalty area, bringing him a 2nd yellow card. Maro Icardi steps up and wallops the penalty wide. And then Icardi himself scores the winner on 81. After just shambolic play. Now, the, the second and third... Actually, no, all three Galatasaray goals are abysmal from United's point of view. The first one is a long hump down the field and Delo gets bullied by Will Zaha, who's falling over at one point and still manages to bully him. Zaha's attempted volley, half-volley, shot-on-the-bounce thing clips DeLo's leg goes down and loops up and Onana just looks silly trying to dive for it. The second goal, Onana, who who we were assured is the best goalkeeper in the world with his feet, just gifts the opportunity to Galatasaray with a very loose pass. And then the third goal is poor from United in the middle of the park, Amrabat is 15 yards behind the rest of the defensive line as the ball gets to Icardi, who runs on and kind of chips it into the arms of Onana, except that Onana has decided to have a lie down on the floor. United then appeal for offside, including Amrabat, I might point out. But it is not offside. It is a winner. And Galath Hasarai get three points from their adventure to Old Trafford. And uh, not not a good start for United at all. Um, they've lost their first two games. They obviously lost at Bayern. They've lost this one. It's not a good start. They're four points behind Galatasaray now in second. And I did say it, I wouldn't be hugely surprised if Galatasaray managed to sneak second place ahead of them. United will have the two games, I believe, with Copenhagen next. Yeah, they've got to take six points or this is over.
3: They have. I mean, I I don't think they can immediately suggest that they will do, given Copenhagen ran Bayern pretty close, uh, went 2-0 up against Galatas right before drawing 2-2 in the end, and United themselves have lost five out of the last seven matches. Um, You know, we we were assured that the turnaround had happened after... You know, beating Burnley one nil, and then Crystal Palace's rotated cup team. Uh, th- those two results were turning the corner in the in the eyes of coaches and fans alike. So, um, not quite sure what what corner they're on again now. They're, they're sort of doing the whole going around the block after so many corners thing. It reminds so- me
2: of Gerard Houllier's last season when we turned yeah. all those corners and there was blessings, yeah, exactly, and stuff
3: exactly right so so many corners turned that we were back where we started that's exactly what it was uh, that's exactly what it was that year um i mean united Galatasaray was a considering such a lot happened it wasn't a very good game like no. obviously the goals and all the instances were excitement but as a whole it wasn't very good both teams were uh poor in terms of like any kind of control any kind of you know, positional. Poor, it,
2: poor in terms of football.
3: Yes, indeed. Um I thought, actually, Galatasaray, when they went behind, both times, they suddenly looked really, really good, really positive, flooding forward. United had no response to that. Every single time runs were made from deep, it was just like acres and acres of space. And every time before Galatasaray scored, United were given like, here's what we're going to do. It's up to you if you want to stop us next time. And they missed like the first one and scored the second one of almost the exact same type of attack each time. It was ridiculous. Um, my favourite thing, I think, was after whatever it is, uh, half a billion, a billion that they've spent on attackers over the last few years, and they had on the pitch on the night. Uh, Hannibal Medjabry, Casemiro, fine. Neither of those two, too attack-minded, but creative attacking forces, Mason Mount, Bruno Fernandez, Marcus Rashford, brought Ericsson, Anthony Garnaccio, Martial, they all came on. The guy who finishes the match with two assists is Davinson Sanchez. And uh, obviously, three assists, if you like, because he was the one who fell over on the halfway line to let Hoyland run through and uh, and score. But uh, Hoof and the 40-yard header were uh, Sanchez's assists on the night, which, which did tickle me greatly, I'll be honest. Mm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Davinson Sanchez... Primary playmaker. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, United are just in a a dreadful place at the moment. Um, I've seen some of their fans say they've just been really unlucky this season, but they haven't. They've been really, really fortunate this year because Wolves should have beaten them on the opening day and should at least have gotten a draw because they were denied a Stonewall penalty. They lost to the Spurs. They went 2-0 behind at home to Nottingham Forest and were very lucky to win that game. They were a little bit unlucky against Arsenal. That's the one I'd give them. The Declan Rice goal should not have stood. There's a foul by Gabrielle on Johnny Evans. That shouldn't have stood. But maybe they still lose the game. Brighton took them apart. Byrne, it felt like we're toying with them. Like you said, they beat Burnley. But again, Burnley could easily have gotten a draw in that game. They missed a couple of good chances. They beat the Palace Reserves. Then they lost the Palace. And I don't think they were unlucky in that one. And now they've lost this game. Like, this is is their worst start in Premier League history. And God knows since when to lose this many times, including this many times at home. Like, the one thing they had going for them... Last season was that they were under Ten Hag was they were really good at home, but this season they've been outplayed at home by Wolves. They've lost at home to Brighton, and they went two nil at home down at home to Nottingham Forest. They've lost at home to Crystal Palace, and now been beaten by Galatasaray. Like they've lost three games at home already this year. That's a really really bad look for Ten Hag. And frankly, all of it is a bad look for him. And I know there's, again, United fans cribbing and crying about injuries, but everybody has injuries. But if you look at the team that started last night, Delow is their best all-round right-back. Varane is their best centre-back. I think Lindelof is a better centre-back, a better defender than Martinez. And if you look at their record with and without Martinez... They're actually better without him. Now, Amrabat at left-back is a nonsense. And I've no idea what's going on there. You're telling me in that entire club, there's not one fit full-back who could fill in at, rather than playing a slow midfielder in there. Mejbury's not part of their starting eleven, But it's not like Christian Eriksen wasn't sat on the bench. That's a manager's decision again. Casemiro's first choice, Mount is first choice, and he was bought to play in centre midfield. Again, Bruno played, but he played him out of position. And Hoyland and Rashford, obviously, are first choice. Garnacho should have been in the team. He sat on the bench. Like, you'd, you'd ideally be bringing Garnaccio in for Moushbury, playing him and Rashford as the wingers, Bruno as the 10, Hoyland as the 9, Casemiro and Ericsson would be the strongest Midfield and attack, in my view, he could have played that last night. He decided not to, so that sits squarely on him. And again, Amrabat is the is the left back. He's out of position, but there has to be a right back or left back at that club who's over the age of seventeen. That would be a better option to use either side and then play Delow whichever side you need him than playing Amrabat there. I have no sympathy at all for Ten Hag. The only best 11 player he's actually missing right now is Luke Shaw. And I'm not hearing that the loss of Luke Shaw is the reason
3: for this. No, I mean, there's definitely enough options there. And even if it wasn't a case that you wanted to play somebody out of position at fullback, you've got enough players who can play centre-back. Scott McTominay has played in the back three. He could have gone back there. You could have probably played him right-back and got a better output and switched Dallow to left-back or whatever it is. But like you say, they have other <sighs> youth players who are obviously not quite in the uh, in the mix at the moment. So, um, not only no sympathy, but absolutely perfectly fine with watching the implosion.
2: Oh, 100%. Delighted to watch the implosion. Um... I'd also point out that, you know, having gone 3-2 down, it then took him four minutes to bring on Anthony and a further four minutes to bring on Martial. Hmm. Like, as soon as that goal comes in, it goes in, you should be throwing those two lads on.
3: them. making changes as soon as the penalty is missed to shore up.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Casemiro gets sent off on 77 and he doesn't react... At all?
3: No, there's no, there's no change there. They just stayed without Casemiro with the same team. Yeah, and then conceded four minutes later after escaping with it, basically off the penalty. There was no changes. I don't think he's a very good manager. And
2: I know he, I know he worked with Pep briefly at Bayern for like a year. But how much did they actually work together? He was with Byron's second team. Pep was with the first team. I don't know how much, like, they obviously would have had interactions in that. But it's not like they're working side by side every minute of the day. And even if they were, like, it's a long time ago. So this idea that he's from the Pep coaching tree is just nonsense. Then, obviously, he did a decent job. At, at Ajax, there's, there's no way around that. You know, he won multiple league titles there. That's always impressive. Three league titles on the, on the spin. Sorry, no, three out of four. He won three out of four league titles. There was no title handed out in the Divisi in 1920. But can I point you in the direction of Frank De Boer, who won four league titles in three and a half years at Ajax? And then... Has been a, an absolute catastrophe everywhere else he's been. But I feel like Ten Hag is much closer to Frank de Boer than he is to, you know, Pep Guardiola or or any of the top managers. He's just for me, he's not in that mix. He's been there now. He he was appointed in well, it was announced in like April of twenty twenty two. So we're 17 months on. We're 15 months since he actually took over. He has spent somewhere in the region of £420 million. I think there's an argument made that most of his signings have been very hit and miss. And in some cases, a lot more missed than hit. There's no discernible style of play. There's no defined patterns of play. When he tried to play his possession-based football, they got walloped. And he went away from that and started playing counter-attacking football, which is fine. That's absolutely fine. But that's not what you hired him for. You didn't hire him to be Olly Gunnar Solskjaer 2.0, but that's what he is. He's Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer 2.0. And I know he won the League Cup last year, but he won it against the Newcastle team with their third-choice goalkeeper who were in their only real wobble of last season at that time. And I do wonder if Toon had played them at any other point in the season in that final, how would it have worked out? Now, maybe Newcastle would not have turned up the way they didn't. They the nerves got to them. Maybe United would have won. And maybe Ten Hag is good in finals. Maybe he gives a good team talk. But... I have not been impressed at all. And he's lost 18 of his 72 games. He's lost a quarter of his 72 games there. That's fairly shocking.
3: I mean, you look at the games that they have coming up. In terms of, you know, United um, turning matters around, let's say. And like you say, the... I'm absolutely not having the injuries that they've got two notable injuries, I would say in Wambasaka and Shaw, and that fine they happen to be same sort of position, same area of position, kind of thing in terms of being a fullback. But it's not like a you know massively debilitating thing to the team. Lisandro Martinez, even if you say he's the first choice, I don't think there's a huge amount of difference between him and Lindelof, right? So if you're losing a, first, a second choice player and play your third choice player, that should be fine, you know, in a in a general team sort of situation. There's nobody else who is a starter for them. Nothing. Nobody nobody else there is of any note who is missing. So, taking into account, like, obviously, you've got the international break coming up and they probably just want to get to that and regroup or whatever it is. They've got Brentford at home, which I think most people would normally expect to win, but Brentford have more than once hammered United in terms of possession and in terms of chances created. Brentford are probably not in their own greatest moment at the moment either. So, you know, it could be just a game where both of them are kind of very, very on the back foot and all of that. Sheffield United, you probably expect them to win, even if it's away from home. And then it's Copenhagen in the first of the doubleheaders before the international break, I think. Or is that after? Is it just...
2: the The just international dreadful. break
3: is... So the Champions League's after the international break, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is,
2: yeah. The international okay. break comes after Brentford, before Sheffield United.
3: Okay, so that run right after the international break then, where they face Copenhagen, Man City, Newcastle, Fulham, Copenhagen again. It's quite That's an important tough. run, and I don't think it's a very good one for where United are at the minute. The only
2: thing going in their favour, in terms of the, the two toughest games there, which are the City... Newcastle games is they're both at home, yeah. but their home form has been poor this season anyway.
3: Yeah, um, just just lost to Brighton at home, to, and uh, Palace Palace at home, and to Galatasaray at home.
2: So, you know, then after that second Copenhagen game, they get Luton at home, and then Everton away, and both of those sides are desperate for points, and you know. Sean Dyche beating United at home wouldn't be the biggest surprise. Especially if the Gnome is back by then, because you know what Dyche is going to do. He's going to dig deep into his farm and it's going to be full agriculture ball to a big fella stood on top of him. He might even play Beto and Calvert-Lewin in that one, so that there's always one of them stood on the little fella. Then they go Galatasaray away, Newcastle away, Chelsea home. By then, Chelsea might have figured out what they're doing. Then Bournemouth home. Then Bayern home. Then Liverpool away. West Ham away. Villa home. And that gets us to a Nottingham Forest on December 30th. Like, hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two footed podcast, which is every day at 4 pm, Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have A Tad Predictable. Hosted by Tadewa. You know Tadewa. He does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye bye that that end of end of calendar year run is really tough and if they stumble through this next phase where they're playing you know your Sheffield Uniteds Copenhagen Fulham Luton and, and Everton well december might be might be a very 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 rough month for manchester united
3: do you think he sees out the season before we move on from this club to a different one?
2: <laughs> um, i I don't know because people have said, "Oh, well, look, look, look at how they've backed him. They, they, they're clearly all in with him." Well, they backed Van Hal massively as well, and sacked him. They backed Mourinho massively, and sacked him. They backed Oli. And sacked him. Like for all the criticisms of the Glazers. And there are plenty. And most of them are valid. The only manager in the post-Ferguson era. That they haven't really backed. Is David Moyes. And he still spent 70 million. On Fellaini and Juan Mata. So. Like I don't think them backing a manager. Really means anything. And when you factor in the off-field stuff, like the situation right now with Jaden Sancho, there's got to be people in the hierarchy at United who are looking at that and thinking, we spent $75 on that fella, and you have him suspended now because your feelings were hurt that he didn't accept you throwing him under the bus. Not, Not to mention the fact that you without authorization, brought up his mental health last season, which caused problems. Then you factor in the Anthony situation, which off the back of the Greenwood situation, United really could have done without the optics. And as some of the Anthony stuff predates his arrival at United, you would have thought, were there character questions about this kid before we got him? Is this something Ten Hag knew about? Did he just not care? And considering he tried to bring back Greenwood and was very, very happy to publicly back Mark Overmars a couple of years ago, it would seem like he didn't care. So I there's got to be at least one or two people in the hierarchy there who, if they're paying attention and looking at it and thinking, what the fuck are we in the middle of here? Is this guy actually any good? Are we going in the right direction? Because, I mean, you know, you take a quick look at the, the Champions League. They're bottom of their group after two games. They're 10th in the Premier League after seven games. And Chelsea... Nottingham Forest and Fulham are only one point behind, whereas they are two points behind Crystal Palace. Like, whatever about being behind City and Tottenham and Arsenal and Liverpool, they're also behind Crystal Palace and a bunch of other teams as well, obviously. Like,
3: it, it can't be going down well. It can't. Right. Well, from one team in that situation to a team who are top of their league and have won the last three We best speak about Union St. Gilos a bit.
2: (laughs) Yes, Union St. Gilos is the purpose of this podcast (laughs) because we will be playing them in the Europa League uh, tomorrow night, that is Thursday night. They have begun their season in good form. They have 19 points from nine games, six wins, a draw and two defeats. They're level on points with Ghent, one point ahead of Anderlecht. Um, in the Europa League thus far they knocked out Lugano Uh, they beat them 3-0 on aggregate to qualify for this group and in their first group match they drew 1-1 with Toulouse in terms of things that are notable about this club the first one is of course that they are owned by Tony Bloom who also owns Brighton Um, They are the team for which Kevin McAllister, brother of Alexis McAllister, plays his football and was absolutely thrilled at the prospect of going up against his brother in this one. I do also note that that just before they played Lugano in the playoff round of the Europa League, they did sign a player from Lugano for four million. Now I don't know enough about Lugano to say this for certainty, but I'm guessing a player valued at four million was one of Lugano's best players. I'm guessing that. So and he's made a good start to life at Union. Um yeah, what do you what do you know about them? What what's your what's your research told you?
3: <laughs> My research. Um 352 uh, decent in terms of positional play um off the ball are top of the league and obviously it's going well but they did they didn't start as as relentlessly as you might have expected them to there was a bit of a you know a, a stutter there in the middle of the start of the season if we can use such a ridiculous term um where they didn't win for three matches and was you know definitely not against teams that you would expect them to be dropping points against um Genk and KV Mechelen, I think it was who beat them. I think it was Mechelen. Um, presumably they'll they'll go absolutely fine across the course of the season and be sort of top two or three anyway. But a good side um, in terms of their approach play. Certainly a lot of attacking threats. Cameron Puertas looks like a really really handy player in the final third, and he's the one who's putting up the numbers for them this season uh, in terms of goals and assists. Um, get Gettable, shall we say, as well. They're they're definitely capable of uh, the odd error and so on in possession. Um, definitely capable of exploiting spaces between that back three as they approach play, uh, as they try to move out through the middle thirds. Like it's not a team that I've watched, obviously, hundreds and hundreds of times, but it kind of looks like the typical fairly nice European team that you play, who are actually quite good and quite well-structured and have a few really good individuals. But Mm. ultimately, you would expect them to be a level or so below the best of the Premier League.
2: Yeah, I think that's very fair. Uh, The manager is Alexander Blesson, He spent a long time in the RB Leipzig coaching ranks from under-17 through under-19, went on to Ustende in Belgium uh, as his first job did very well there finished fifth and he was linked with a couple of jobs in England. one was Sheffield United one was celtic um with when you know the, before before Ange he was linked to the celtic job uh but stayed a second season. And then he took the Jellywood job, which was my first real opportunity to see much of them. They went down. It wasn't his fault. They were going down anyway. Nobody was saving them. They were just diabolical. But he was given a new contract and offered the opportunity to bring them back up, and he was sacked then in December because things were going really badly. Um, but he did play nice football, and he tried to get them being brave In how they played. Unfortunately he just didn't really have the players at Genoa. To pull that off. Now as things turned out. After he was sacked. Genoa turned the season around. And ended up getting promoted. But I wouldn't put that on him. He's new to this job. Uh, He was appointed in the summer. Their previous manager. Carol Gerrits. He moved on. Um. I'm not really sure what the the situation was that made him decide to move on or maybe he was moved on but like they finished third in the league last year which is a pretty decent achievement because they got promoted from the Belgian second league in 2021 finished second in their first season in the top flight and then third last season so they've immediately become you know one of the better teams in Belgium the one Really notable thing that took place in the summer was the sale of Victor Boniface for £20 He obviously went to Bayer Leverkusen and has made a great start there and looks a hell of a player. But they had some other interesting players that have also moved on. Obviously, they scout using Star Lizard, the, the same group that is responsible for talent identification at Brighton. So they do have a leg up on a lot of their competitors in, in Belgium. But I mean this is this is a game we should be very confident of winning. They, they're gonna come and have a go. There's no question. They're not gonna come and park the bus because that's not you know it's not what they do. But they're gonna come and have a go, but they will make mistakes and there will be there will be weak points in the team. Their top goal scorer is Dennis Eckert, a German player who joined last. joined in January and um, or was it January or June? Might have been June. But he didn't play a bunch for them last season because Boniface was playing so well. But he's flying this season. I think he's got 7-7 and this season. So he's made a really good start and he's going to be the big danger man for them. He's going to be the one we have to keep a real eye on.
3: Yeah, I mean um (sighs) Like I said, the, the build-up play is pretty good, to be honest. I mean, it's it's definitely not going to be a team, I think, who intends to sit back. Obviously, if Liverpool play well and we make them do so, that's a completely different matter. But when they play, they'll try and play out. They'll try and be forward-thinking and commit players forward in general match terms. Depends how the, the, the scoreline obviously progresses, whether they stay that way or not. Um, I, I do think a lot is going to depend on, assuming Liverpool rotate and put out, let's say, what has been more or less the cup team how many of those players are sharp and how many of them are like, really on their game in terms of how well we deal with this. Because Union rested quite a few players from their normal start in eleven at the weekend. So I think we can assume that this is the one that they wanted to be full strength for uh, and bring everybody back in and give themselves the biggest chance of playing well and getting a, a result and a bit of an upset at Anfield, obviously, um, which would be a, a huge thing for them. Mm. Um like I said, I think a lot will come down to how we decide to perform on the night, how diligent we are about a lot of our work. Probably worth noting, I suppose you mentioned uh, Kevin McAllister, who usually plays right side of their back three. They have a, an English player in the middle of the back three, uh, which is um, Burgess, Burgess, I think his name is. Yeah, Christian Burgess. Yeah. My head now, I, was, yeah, I was just reading about the other little kid, Ross Sykes, who they have there. Um, Middlesbrough legends.
2: Christian Burgess played one game. Um was at Hartlepool, <laughs> Peterborough and Pompey and then moved to Union when they were in the second division and has been sort of a key part in helping them uh get get re promoted. They've got a couple of English lads
3: there, Ross Sykes.
2: Yeah, Ross Sykes of... is the
3: one I was just reading about, which is why I forgot Burgess's name. He's actually uh, no stranger to Merseyside, I would imagine. He was a Burnley youth player and played for Accrington and Southport. Mm.
2: Yeah, uh, and he's been he's been there a year now. Um, and the third one is Matthew Soronola, who's not a player I'm massively familiar with. He came through the Fulham Academy and then the MK Dons Academy. Played with MK Dons for about a season and a bit. Um, spent the last season actually on loan with Swansea. So obviously of a decent standard, if he could play 29 games uh for for a championship team last season so you know they, they they have that little English core there um the other the other player who oh, what was his name? Oh that's going to annoy me let me have a look. There was somebody else I, I watched them play not that long ago and they, there's one guy stood out to me. Not Ekdal.
3: While you're re- looking for that, I'll I'll discuss somebody else in their team who we presumably will be playing against. Um They have a 59-cap international goalkeeper in goal. Uh, a lesser spotted one, admittedly. He's the Luxembourg first-choice keeper. Um
0: Anthony, Anthony Morris. Morris.
3: Yeah, I saw him um, when he was really young playing with Standard Liège and had uh, completely lost sight of him, obviously, until the last couple of years when he's rocked up as Union's first choice again. He was really, really highly rated. There was a couple of Spanish teams who were keen on him when he was a young um, stopper. I'm not sure if he ended up having trials with them or he just was like invited over or that sort of thing. But there was a couple of them keeping an eye on him. I only remember it because it was Luxembourg and you never really get any stars from Luxembourg. No, um, But yeah, pretty um, pretty decent keeper. who's had a couple of uh, comebacks from injury and that sort of thing as well.
2: Noah Siddiqui is the player I'm thinking of. 18 year old can play plays pri- primarily as a defensive midfielder but can play center back as well he was at anderlecht and was fairly highly touted coming out of anderlecht and was a bit of a surprise when he jumped ship to to union but he'd run down his contract to 12 months and anderlecht didn't want to uh didn't want to risk him leaving on a free so they they took what cash they could get um So, yeah, he might be one to keep an eye out. Powerful kind of box-to-box defensive midfielder, ball-winner type. Um, Right, let's talk about the Liverpool team then because you mentioned you know how we've kind of had a league team and a cup team. There's been a little bit of crossover and I assume there will be again here. Now, we've obviously got um, a couple of things to take into account with this, Carl. So, Cody Gatbo is going to be injured. So he's he's potentially out now for a little while. Um. So so he would, I would have thought, played in this one because I think he is probably in the in the cup front three, him and Jota. Um. But now with with him out, does Jota play through the middle, and maybe Diaz starts with Doak on the other wing?
3: I mean. I think Dog is a definite starter first of all. So let's just pin him in. Um, I think Jota is a definite starter, and then, then there's the there, there's this crossover that you're talking about. Because I mean, I don't think at the moment Klopp is, uh, let's say, making changes or picking his team based on the next team. I think it's probably still too early in the league in season, and obviously the international break will come up after that. So mm-hmm. I don't think at the minute if it's, you know, you play against Union, you're not going to play against Brighton kind of thing. So one question is, is Darwin okay to start? Because obviously he wasn't at the weekend with the knee. If he is, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Darwin through the middle, Jota left. And we go with quite a... I think Harvey Elliott's playing right wing in this game, Carl.
2: And where because Doe Because Ryan Gravenberch will start, Maturo yeah. will start. And given Curtis Jones can't play a domestic game until November, I bet Curtis Jones starts. So you're leaving Doak's sub? I think Ben Doak will be a sub. And I think that's the right move, because I don't think he's ready for for senior football.
0: I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac, and Android TV. Or, go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, magboxes, and games consoles. Visit Libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout.
2: I think he's very exciting in short bursts, but I don't think he's ready to be playing as playing full games for us. Now, if he does play, I think they could try Ben Dork off the other side, but I, I don't think he starts.
3: Uh, yeah, I think that's that's fine. It's obviously going to be important to have some attacking and pacey and potentially impactful changes on the bench anyway. And we are going to be down a few of those uh, over the coming weeks. Like you mentioned, Gakpo's going to be one who we would either start in this cup game or be called upon regularly as a sub if he doesn't start anyway. So yeah, it's it's important to have the alternatives. And if Dok is that at the moment, that's perfectly fine for where he is in his development. Uh, so you're looking at Jota left... Elliott right and Nunes through the middle as well or something different?
2: Either that or Jota through the middle and Diaz off the left. But I think Darwin's probably more likely, if he's if he's okay to play. Yeah. Um. But I, I, the thing is, we, we do have these really good options. And look, it may well be that Mo Salah is currently sat in Jurgen Klopp's office and saying, look, I want to play. So just, just put me through the middle. I'll play through the middle i figure everything else out. But I'm, I want goals. I'm getting some goals. So, you know, Salah, I'm sure, will will want to feature at some point. But, yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd go Darwin through the middle and Jota off the left, even though I don't really like Jota off the left. If Darwin's fit, then, yeah, go
3: with that. And given the crossover weirdness that's got going on at the minute, do you expect Trent to come in at right back to get some what looks like much-needed minutes?
2: Yes, I do. I think Trent will start at right back. Uh, He looked miles off the pace when he came on at Spurs. Um, Like a week away from being a sub. Yeah, basically, basically. Now, Costas will be left back. Kelleher will be in goal. That then opens the question of who plays in the middle. And uh, personally, I would go with Kwanzaa and Kanate again. I thought they looked really good as a pairing in the League Cup game against Leicester. And I want to see a little bit more of of those two. So I'd be rolling those two out with Trent and Costas as the fullbacks.
3: I am pretty happy with that four, to be perfectly honest. Um, I'd like to see Kwanzaa in a couple more games so that eventually we'll see him Tested in an array of defensive situations because mm. I I really think that that's what he hasn't had so far yet, which is odd given he's a centre back. But I just I don't don't think he's had too much of it yet.
2: No, no, he hasn't. And look, he's he's dealt very well with what he's been asked to deal with, but he hasn't had a huge test yet. So we, we'll see. Um, I think that's a solid base that Kelleher, Trent, Quansa, Ibu, and Costas. I think that gives us something to build from there. I do think, like, I just think because he's suspended now from domestic games, I think Curtis Jones has to start. Now, I suppose the question is, does Gravenberch miss out because he's going to start the next league game?
3: If Gravenberch is going to start in the league game, I think he has to start this game because you have to have a really good rhythm to go in and obviously add the the cramps um, towards the end of one of the matches and then, you know, a sub-appearance, which not a whole lot you could do. So I think it's quite important to get let's say 50 to 60 or whatever it is from him. If he's going to be playing Sunday.
2: Yeah. And and 50 to 60 is exactly leading me to my next point. I guarantee you Alexis McAllister has been in the office saying, I want to play in this game. I don't care how long I want to be on the pitch with my brother. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. If we see that, if, if, Gravenberg starts and plays the first hour, and then Alexis comes on and
3: plays the last half hour. So we're looking at Jones left, end of six, Gravenberg right. I think
2: so, yeah. I think that's the midfield I'd I'd be looking to start. I think
3: it's the midfield that makes the most sense. There's a few options there to to bring on as well. Obviously, when you look at Basatic as still doing his comeback sort of thing, and uh, if Doug does come on, obviously, you've got Elliot who could move back in, McCallister, like you say, plus we'll still have Sobazlai and whoever else on the bench.
0: It'd
2: be really nice if we could get through a game without having to bring on Sobazlai, <laughs> just Good. like let, let him have a rest for once. Um, so yeah, look, you know, we've laid out a fairly strong group of 13 or 14 players there that we can go into this game. And rely on without having to include Dominic, Mo, Virgil, Ali, Robertson,
0: and even Alexis.
2: To be fair, um, so that is a that is a really strong situation to be in. Even with like at the moment, we have Curtis suspended in the domestic, but he's okay for this one. Jota suspended domestically, but he's okay for this one. Uh, Besetic I'm not really sure what the latest update is. The last thing Klopp said about him, which was just before the Spurs game, was, and I quote, Stefan had a little, 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 tiny calf issue. Now, that's four littles and a tiny, which will tell you how small Klopp believes the issue is. Um, but that's how it is when you're out for six months. So, you know, hopefully it's just a little niggle and he, he's okay to go. And then obviously Cody and Thiago are sort of the two medium term injuries for now. We don't we don't really have any word on what the Cody injury is. He's got a knee brace on, so you know we'll wait and see. Um and Thiago hopefully will be back after the international break, which would be a big boost to get as well. We're in a good a good situation. We started the league well. Obviously the, the result at the weekend is what it is. We know why it ended up that way. I still think there's somewhat of a cover-up from the PGMOL. Um, But, you know, it is what it is. The fact that Simon Hooper worked having put in that performance, it remains a disgrace. And I'm genuinely furious that his performance has been completely swept under the carpet because of the ineptitude of the VAR. Like, they need to be looking at him as well because he was a disgrace. Um, But, you know, it is what it is. But we've started the the league campaign well. We're up and running in the Europa League. We've progressed in the League Cup. The squad is looking strong. There's a real belief among this squad, I think, this year. Mentally, these lads have, have really kicked back into the gear we were used to from a couple of years ago. After you know last season, where mentality midgets was was a bit more apt for them, um. So I'm I'm very confident at the moment, Carl. I'm very, uh, you know, I'm going into games now feeling very, very confident that even if we don't play all that well for the full ninety, we have enough that we can get by teams and and get the results we need.
3: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that that's right. You know, we we've rebuilt that way of feeling about the team. It's definitely been a process and it's definitely not there yet in terms of everything fixed, but we've been much better. And again, I refer back to what we've said over the last two or three scouted. It's not a coincidence that that's happened when we've had that midfield in place with Jones providing something and Alexis doing a particular role. And so like being awesome. Like that's been such a foundation of the regeneration of us being Really tough to beat, really tough to get by, and also being very, very good ourselves. So there's still work to be done. I'm happy with that. Looking ahead, obviously we want to get to the international break without any further you know, dropping of points or anything like that. The same same night we play this Union match, um, Brighton play Marseille, and neither of those have been in very good form recently. So it'll be quite a tense and quite a difficult match for them, for, for both of those teams. But from a Brighton perspective, away Marseille, really difficult. Away that stadium, very difficult. Uh, away needing a result after losing in the first group stage game difficult marseille will need a result themselves because of poor form all of these things play in and then you go and play each other on a sunday before the international break i agree at the minute it's much more optimistic from our perspective and squad wise i'm pretty happy with how it's been managed so far as well i must say maybe the odds you know change or alteration to who's in the cup team and who's not but that's not just coaching decision and an and opinion that's not a, a fact of this has gone wrong every single time we do need probably to get to the international break now without losing any more players of a really important nature certainly in terms of the ability to uh, still have our attacking prowess reduced um, because if you lose Trent you then you lose Gakpo then you lose Jones that you know these things are connected you know if they're all in the first level we're fortunate that we've got someone as good as Mm. Darwin to come in and start so hopefully no more at this moment in time um and yeah if we if we do get through to the international break with two more wins I think that is an exceptional segment for the season done
2: yeah yeah and like we've been fortunate enough with, with where the injuries have been this this season so far like Trent missed a few games but Joe Gomez comes in and does brilliantly in the right back position. Curtis Jones has done well in the right back position, and Besetic has given us a, a decent performance at, at right back this season as well. So that's very promising. Um, Curtis now being suspended in midfield, but you know Ryan Gravenberch is is available to us now to come in uh, and, and play. We've also got the uh, the option of of playing Endo in the six and moving uh, Alexis to the number eight or, you know, bringing Harvey Elliott into the team or bringing Stefan Besetich in as a number eight. So, you know, we are, we're, we're, we're in a pretty good spot at the moment. Um, If you look at our squad, like the, the, the one glaring need is that starting caliber number six to allow Alexis to go back and play his more natural role. And if we had that, I think we'd, we'd be, by far the strongest contenders for the title alongside City. Um, But, you know, that's something we can address in January, hopefully. For now, we just need to get through Union, get through Brighton, then we get the international break. Players can take that time to get themselves right, get, get fit again, come back off that break. It's Everton home, Toulouse home, and then... Nottingham Forest at home. So three home games on the spin, all winnable games, all games that we should be able to win, even with one or two out. Then we go to Bournemouth in the Cup. We'll have Curtis back by that one. And again, that's a winnable game. Then it's Luton, then Toulouse. So the fixtures are are favourable enough for us. I mean, our last game after Toulouse before the international, the, the next international break is Brentford. And then we've got a two-week gap to City. So, you know, if we can get through tonight, tomorrow night and Brighton, the next little chunk before the next international break is quite favourable to us. It's seven games that we will go into heavily expected to win, including three league games at home and only one away. And then, you know... It's kind of you take the next portion as city through to that little break that you have at the start of January when the, kind of the FA Cup gets played, but there's also that like a week off as well. Um, are they doing that week off this year? They are, aren't they? They're not. Oh, they're oh, they are doing. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we 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 play the FA Cup, then we play Bournemouth, and then there's a, a gap until we play Chelsea. So
3: last. T- Last time we did it, it was staggered, wasn't it? Half the league did it first, and then half second. A half second, and then it yeah. Didn't happen the following year, yeah. Yeah, yeah but they, are, they are I think I think I'm right in saying they're doing it this year. I th- I think we are. I never actually looked, but I think they said that they were doing it this year. But it should be like again, one group doing it one week, and then the next yeah. week doing it the next yeah. week.
2: Yeah, because yeah, last season they couldn't do it because the World Cup had made a mess of things. Um, so hopefully, yeah, hope. But like again, you can you can just take that next chunk as being from City up until we face Newcastle on December 30th, because then it's the FA Cup third round. And if if we get lucky, we might just get you know a nice non-league team at home where we can roll out a, a kind of rested reserve team and go and wallop them. And then it starts back into the next chunk of games. But yeah, if you break the season up into segments, it does make it a lot easier to sort of digest. And the then the end of this phase is tough with brighton but the next phase is is very favorable to us the phase after that then will be a little bit defining because it begins with city and the third last game of it is arsenal and you know they realistically they're the two teams we're we're sort of measuring ourselves against um city because they're the best in the league and arsenal because if we finish above arsenal We'll almost certainly finish
3: second. We're winning the league. Stop talking about second, honestly, Me. <laughs> yeah, well, to be the, fair, they did, the league in Europa did, double. Well, that's what he, we're on. This did year. did lose to uh, did
2: lose to Wolves at the weekend? So you know, who knows? Anything could be possible uh,
3: this year. I think I think we need to mark today in the diaries that we've beaten Lask, and now we're on the. Europa League, Premier League, double. That's the train we're on this season. What <laughs> oh, wonder the? they would not win any of the
2: Cups, just giving up on the Cups, Carl. I
3: Aww. mean, I don't want to give up on the Cups, but I'll be honest, it's a long time since I can remember us not retaining the Cup, but doing really well the second season after we've won it. So yes, I'd very, sir. very much like to. You know I'm a big domestic Cups guy, but it doesn't happen very often, does it?
2: I'm so. all in on the Cup travel this year. Oh, I'd love that! I'm that all in.
3: Brilliant!
2: Give me the cup travel. I'm I'm happy to hand back the league. Give me the cup travel, the Hulier okay. season, and, and I'm happy.
3: Right. I'll, and, I'll be um, equally happy, especially since you're doing all the league cup roars.
2: I am. I am indeed. League Cup, Europa League. I'm oh, man of the people this year, Carl. I've been. <laughs> I've been not The people are the terrified. Country. Yeah, good enough for them. Um,
3: right, give me a prediction, then let's let's end this. Um. I don't know, to be honest. This is quite a tricky one. I might have to go back to the three ones. Yeah. I really think this could go either way. Like, if the first team is who do play, if, like, we do have a Darwin and a Jones and Trent is suddenly looking sharp again, we could hammer them. But if we're slow and sluggish, they could really surprise us. I wouldn't be surprised Like, you know, they score first again. I'll go 3-1, but I do think this is a very open one. I'm going to go 4-2. Ooh.
2: Still a two-goal margin of victory. And it wouldn't surprise me if we're like 4-1 up and they just get a late kind of consolation jobby. But yeah, I think 4-2. I 4-2, think four, four, two, four, two, why not? Um, right, well, we can leave it there then. Um, it's taken over an hour. We did about 20 minutes on, on the actual game and spent about as much time talking with Manchester United. But that's fine. Uh, it was a conversation that needed to, needed to be had. Do you have anything in the written word that people need to be aware of?
3: I do, but I'm actually going to talk instead um, for like three seconds over uh, MLS. Messi obviously having had a massive impact and people want to go and see him and all that sort of stuff. Um, And people have been buying tickets now. He's obviously injured and they're worried about people not actually going to the games and stuff. So to just represent the scale of that, uh, Inter Miami plays Chicago Fire. Uh, tonight as we're recording this so it would be Wednesday so Chicago Fire have sold over 61,000 tickets for this game their record attendance all time which was set in 1998 is 37,000 so a massive massive jump from their best ever day which was over the best part of a quarter of a century ago just because of this one guy. So they're obviously desperately hoping now that people actually do turn up. They're offering them money against a future match, basically, if they do turn up and use the ticket. Uh So hopefully a, a good match all around, even if he's, he's not involved. But what they're really hoping for, obviously, is to, to bring on board a new generation of supporters for a longer time.
2: Yeah, the the messy impact on MLS is absolutely incredible. Um. Obviously, the the stadium in Chicago is is the legendary Soldier Field, home of the Chicago Bears, and it, it's always whenever I've watched Chicago Fire play, I've always it's it, it's it's one of the more depressing sights in football to see a club playing in a stadium that's very clearly far too big for them. So, like you said, their record attendance is thirty seven thousand. Did you say?
3: Uh, yeah, 30, 30, 36, I think it was, 37, whatever it was, they said, yeah.
2: And that, that stadium holds 61,500. So you, even their most sold game, there was still two-fifths of the stadium empty. So, you know, most weeks they're attracting twelve to 15,000. So the stadium is three-quarters empty. Now they try and tarp it off and that, but it's still you can still see that the majority of the stadium is empty. So the Messi impact is incredible here. And the fact that they've pretty much been able to sell the place out for the first time is amazing. And obviously they have the World Cup coming up in 2026. And you and I are old enough, Guy was barely an itch in the Alpha for the sack, to (laughs) remember the 1994 World Cup and the impact that that had on football in the States. And between the combination of Messi and this upcoming World Cup, I really do think we could see a boom period for, for football in America for the next eight. eight to ten years.
3: Yeah, fully agreed. They could make this the the period where they take on board a massive generation of people interested in watching, but also interested in playing, obviously, for their own mm. prospects in the future. Like, we will see.
2: There's so much talent in that country, so much sporting ability, and obviously they have to compete with baseball and basketball and American football and ice hockey and lacrosse and all these other different things that the that the, the Americans do. But this is a real chance to start widening the talent pool, so that you know you, you look at the national team. There's fantastically talented players there. If they can continue to Expand that, considering the size of the country and how many people they have—about three hundred and sixty million or something. Like, there's no reason they shouldn't be able to become a real powerhouse in the next decade. They will up- absolutely need a new manager for the national team um, and a new vision for the national team. But like this, this is huge for them, and I- I'm really impressed with with what the um, with what the, the 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 messy impact has been. So, um, fingers crossed that people turn up and, and don't go away uh, unhappy. And with that, I suppose we leave it there. Make sure you follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Matchett. Read his work in The Independent. Follow Guy Drinkle at Guy Drinkle. And don't follow me because it's just all a pain in the arse. See you next time. Bye bye.
1: We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel